Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes. I'm Mark Leonard and over the holiday season we're bringing you a special series looking at how the things that bring us together, like trade, technology, the internet and migration, can also tear us apart. My work has been built on a rising tide of internationalism, but in 2016 with Britain voting to leave the EU and Donald Trump winning the White House, that tide went out. I felt shipwrecked and wrote a book about how, like many others, I I had had to face up to a world that wasn't going the way I thought it would. And now we're trying to work out what to do next. My conclusion is that rather than eradicating connectivity's dark side with a new grand design, what we need are strategies for shaping and surviving our new reality. I call it the age of unpeace, therapy for internationalists. So in this series, I want to take a more therapeutic approach to international relations. I'll be talking to guests who've experienced a similar journey. Together, we'll discuss things like, why did the globalist dream of one world go wrong? Why have the world's great powers been competing with each other rather than working together on COVID-19, climate change and global migration? Will China and America go to war? And today, I have a very special guest, Maricha Schaker. Maricha is the International Director of Policy at Stanford Cyber Policy Center, as well as International Policy Fellow at Stanford University's Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence. She's also president of the Cyber Peace Institute and a former member of the European Parliament, and last but not least, an ECFR board and council member. Maricha, you and I have known each other for quite a long time, and um, I think have uh, discussed these topics in all different parts of the world. I think one of our first long discussions, I think, was was in Istanbul a very long time ago. But um, um, I think we've both been on a bit of a journey about how to look at the world. Um, maybe we can start with that. I mean, if you think about the world in 2021, um, how does it compare to the way that you thought it was going to be maybe 20 years ago when we were when we were young? And well, you're still young and beautiful, but I'm uh, anyway younger. Um, uh, how, how does the world um, uh, compare to, to what you hoped it was going to look like? Well, thanks thanks for the introduction and for having me. I was actually still at the university 20 years ago and studying new media in the second year that that field was ever offered. And it was really a time of enormous promise and excitement around what technologies could bring in terms of empowering individuals, uh, in terms of breaking through incumbent and monopoly powers. Uh, in terms of democratizing. And that hope and that excitement among uh, hackers and engineers and uh, makers was very attractive. And it really seemed possible to have a more values-driven world, connections based on shared interests, you know, uh, communities self-organizing, voices being heard that couldn't be heard because of censorship and repression. So if I compare that promise and that vision, which, you know, at that point point was still to be built uh, to a large extent, to where we are today, I think one painful lesson is that the technology did not create a self-fulfilling prophecy for liberalization or democratization, and that there was a laziness or an overtrust on the part of democratic governments in uh, relying on the market, relying on companies and their services with that hope that, you know, those those services would in and of themselves lead to better outcomes. And I think 
one big lesson that we see sort of reminders of every day is that if you want the rule of law to be resilient, if you want democracy to be preserved, you need to govern for it, you need to choose for it. And not just with, you know, market instruments hoping that they will lead to um, a better balance of power or more healthy public debate. You really, I think, have to be willing to very directly address the harms to democracy and, and stand for its protection. So that is something that when I was 23, 20 years ago, uh, I don't think I could have foreseen that it would it would be such um, a rude awakening for democracies in that sense. So that's one angle is, is the way that our own societies haven't necessarily been liberalized. But also when it comes to, to international relations, I think certainly we go back um, 20 years or so to the early days of the internet. Um, Bill Clinton famously said that trying to um, censor the internet as China was doing was like nailing jello to the wall. Um, and he meant that that was kind of impossible. The Chinese have got quite good at nailing jello to the wall over the last 20 years. How do you think that the kind of international realm um, has has been uh, developing compared to what we hoped? I mean, in some ways, the the, the global village which the internet was going to be creating has been turned um, in some books into the perfect weapon. Um, how did that happen? Well, I think the domestic and the international are always two sides of the same coin. If we zoom in on the United States particularly, there we saw the most reluctant attitude, and to some extent we still see today, to do any kind of um, legal or regulatory intervention in uh, the tech markets. And if the United States and its strong um, tech companies are not somehow making sure that those companies operate within uh, the, the framework of democracy and universal human rights, then of course the, the impact and the lack of that leadership is going to ripple around the world too. And I think you know, by over-relying on tech companies with the hope of having positive outcomes, we actually saw a lot of perverse impacts. I mean, um, hacking and surveillance tools being exported to human rights um, repressive regimes, the, the very services and, and uh, products that are used for um, selling more being, being turned into tools of surveillance and repression, uh, not putting any boundaries up for companies that are heavily relying on, for example, the Chinese markets, uh, where AI is also very much um, fostered by um, unlimited data gathering, uh, repression of minorities, and so on. So it's, I think, impossible to say, well, on the one hand, there was a domestic challenge where democratization didn't come to fruition. And then there's also an international perspective. I think it's it's generally a lack of leadership on the part of democratic governments to say, we're going to make sure that whichever innovations happen do not disrupt our core principles, whether it's at home or abroad. And in that sense, the Communist Party in China has made sure that technology is an instrument that serves their political model. And in, in a way, um, they, they've, I think, read the stakes and the interests more clearly uh, from a sort of state, state point of view. And, and that's a sad, rude awakening, but it's one that we cannot ignore. And it's now really a question of what action can we expect? And in the US, unfortunately, things are so polarized that I don't think we can expect much. Because that relationship between the US and China is, is sort of turning into a multiple front tech war on cybersecurity between the National Security Agency and the Chinese Ministry of Public Security between corporate 
superpowers, you know, like Google and Facebook and Apple and Amazon and Baidu and and Tencent and um, uh, Huawei and other kind of big Chinese companies, but also fights over the rules of engagement about connectivity, which all of which seem to be balkanizing the world in different ways. Um, my sort of core um, goal with this series is to develop a, a kind of self-help program. I set out a five-step program for the age of unpeace where we kind of think about how we can make connectivity less dangerous and disarm it. Um, so if you don't mind, Maricha, it'd be great to, to, to see what we can do if we want to get through the current problems that we've just been describing um, and how we can see some light at the end of, uh, of this tunnel. Um, as with all uh, psychological programs, the first step is facing up to the problem. So maybe we can start with that. Uh, to what extent do you think we in Europe and America have faced up to the problem? How would you define it? I mean, we've gone into some of the different elements um, so far, but if we're really clear eyed about what the problems are, how, if you, how would you taxonomize uh, the sort of core problems to do with connectivity? And technology. Well, I would say generally the over-reliance on companies has been a major problem that manifests itself in an absence of security and verifications. For example, an over-reliance on commercially made software that is simply trusted to be secure, even if it's used in the most sensitive context and it proves not to be secure. You know, ransomware attacks on critical infrastructure, uh, state-sponsored hacking uh, and infiltration, really getting to the very core of what a state seeks to protect and what is now digitized and, and more vulnerable instead of um, more robustly protected. And the same goes for um, the impact on, on human rights, um, on uh, competitive advantages without really having a clear strategic vision of what democracies are seeking to achieve. It's just not going to materialize and market incentives are simply different from public interest incentives uh, and so on. So that's a, a hard lesson that I think is still being learned. In, in Europe, there is a more advanced discussion on this, right, on how to protect democracy, how to make sure that there are better, better uh, adjusted rules for competition and content moderation and political advertisements. But in the United States, I think, you know, what is it? Five stages of grief, denial, <laughs> sorrow, anger, and then uh, some kind of response. Maybe I'm forgetting one. But I think in the United States, there may still be a sort of um, phase of, of um, denial and sadness. Uh, and I think that the kind of energy might come from anger and empowering lawmakers to do something because we've seen whistleblower after CEO, after expert giving testimony in front of Congress. And how much more testimony do we have to hear to have a proper diagnosis and for the, the people that are entrusted to actually make laws that match the current day to, um, to actually do something. So I'm hoping that uh, in, in the sort of reckoning phase that we are uh, about what has not worked, it can quickly be turned into action to change it for the better. I'm sure that well, that's your aim with the self-help steps too. Absolutely. That's our second step, really, which is establishing healthy boundaries. And I kind of think paradoxically that the best way of uniting the world is to create enough distance so that people feel safe and in control and that the dividing line we're wrong to think about the dividing line being between open and closed societies, but it should rather be about between managed and unmanaged togetherness on everything from, from trade and migration and culture to, to technology. So I think that's what you're kind of hinting at is that the, a lot of the problems we've had is from having a sort of laissez-faire uh, approach where we just hope that everything's going to sort itself out. 
if we are very clear about what the public goods we're trying to protect are, what kind of steps do you think we need to take to, to manage technology and to regulate it um, so that those public goods actually are preserved rather than just hoping for the best? Mm-hmm. So currently we see a lot of um, technology-specific regulations, regulations about AI, about the cloud, about chips and supply chains. But another way to think about it is to say, what are those four democratic principles or um, market instruments that we care about, like antitrust, like freedom from discrimination, like freedom of expression, like access to information, like accountability and and, um, oversight over the use of force. A lot of principles that are actually not very new, not very controversial, but that are under pressure right now. And so I think by starting with the principle and giving more discretion to regulators to enforce, you can actually get ahead of the problem of the technology always moving faster than regulation, right? Which has kind of become this tired mantra of why uh, regulation is difficult to catch up with technology. I don't think we should really think about it that way. I think we should think about how to preserve the core principles that define our quality of life, our, our liberties in a way that is resilient, no matter what technology comes about. And I'm hoping that that kind of turning the problem upside down can actually lead to to faster results instead of spending, what is it now, around a decade in the United States talking about content moderation, freedom of expression, what can and cannot be done, while today and tomorrow's problems are already manifesting themselves, right? We have to be very, very careful not to be regulating yesterday's problems while huge new challenges are surfacing as we speak. So that brings us to the third step, which is be realistic about what you can control. I think in many ways, we've been hoping in lots of areas, not just technology, we've been hoping for sort of convergence around some centrist globalist philosophy that would help us deal with things. And there are definitely areas where it might make sense to do things on a global level. But the whole question about who we are and how we work together is is, is very complicated. Uh, there's lots of talk, particularly in this realm, about systemic rivalry and about how. Uh, so that was maybe something we could go into a bit more deeply. If you think about setting these standards in some areas, maybe there is a, a way of where we could all agree about what we want to do and have some kind of minimal standards. There are other standards which seem to make, you know, there's sort of some sort of hope that we can do them maybe amongst democratic countries in the West or through the G7 or that kind of frameworks. Then there do seem to be a whole series of specific um, challenges for for Europeans. Europeans have been very uh, active in regulating some aspects of technology, the GDPR. Um, is often cited as an example of the Brussels effect of um, of, uh, of the European Union um, trying to to create a gold standard which other people can meet. Um, and then you know different countries like Australia, for example, have had their go at, at, at taking on Facebook or other kind of corporate giants. I mean, how do you see um, all of these things fitting together? What what do you think we can control and at what levels? Do you take some of those basic standards that you were talking about, about the health of our democracy? Um, you know, who do you think should be dealing with it? How how should we go ahead with it? Uh, with it? And particularly think about it from a European perspective. To what extent are our kind of goals aligned with, with each other and with other democracies like the US or India? Um, uh, anyway, yeah. take us into that. Yeah, so I... I do think that the European Union's um, advantage is that it has thought about what is at stake quite a bit. 
uh, and has been willing to act in order to protect, you know, uh, the right to privacy, for example, not only in relation to tech companies, I should add, but also in relation to overreach by the government or any other company for that matter. Um, so it's, it's not uh, inspired only by uh, the outsized power of big tech companies, as a lot of Americans think. Um, the EU, I think, has an um, ongoing process of making sure that there's harmonization between EU member states uh, and that fundamental values count for something. I think a fundamental weakness is, on the one hand, the fragmentation, not only between countries, but also between policy initiatives. I mean, you know, we've had an AI Act presented. Then there's a Data Governance Act presented. There's also data protection regulation. There's now also political ad um, initiative. I mean, why couldn't they be joined together in one? Uh, and, and I think the real risk is that they're going to inadvertently be uh, controversial, contradictory, elements of these uh, various pieces of legislation that may not add up and there will be unfortunate cracks and um, room to exploit. The other weakness is that there is um, a very strong internal focus. I mean, you you said uh, reference that the GDPR is seen as the, the Brussels effect, uh, a law that can in influence the world that has a ripple effect. And even though uh, that may be the case, there's a lot of movement elsewhere from the United States to, to China. So I don't think there's time for complacency on the part of Europeans in thinking that they're going to enjoy that first mover advantage forever. Um, and when you think about who the EU can work with, the United States are both a key partner, but also a key challenge because the US does not have such a clearly articulated vision. It doesn't even have a federal data protection law, and it is now on a very different path. So one, I think the one issue that unites Democrats and Republicans is concern over China. And so that framework sort of automatically becomes more appealing because it's the area where you can reach consensus. So it's really become a defining frame for political action. Whereas in the EU, I see concern for China ranking much lower as a priority. Similarly, the US is, is engaging in all kinds of ad hoc coalitions. So it is on the one hand, very focused on Asia with the quad with a lot of data and technology aspects out of the summit for democracy. A number of new initiatives were announced from a tech competition together with the United Kingdom to have privacy preserving technologies to a new ad hoc coalition on export controls with the Danes, the Norwegians and the Australians. And I think the risk of those ad hoc coalitions is even further fragmentation between democratic states, which won't serve a sort of common strength, right? And so the trap is that the Europeans and the Americans will have a lot to bicker about between them, privacy shield, um, but also whether the laws that the EU is updating are actually targeting U.S. companies, as, as Commerce Secretary Raimundo seems to, uh, seems to fear, and that there will be a lot more focus on what, what differs uh, than what combines their interests. So I think the, the EU should focus much more on the broader geopolitical perspective. So learn from the US a little bit in that sense, focus more on Asia particularly. And the US should focus more on needing to actually put laws in place to guide technological disruption in the right direction and not allow it to disrupt what's most important for us. So I think the contours of a fruitful collaboration are there, but in practice, it's extremely difficult, particularly because the U.S. is not likely to be able to adopt a lot of domestic regulations without which it will be much harder to lead globally. I mean, you cannot really defend a model that doesn't exist, right? You, it's harder to say to other countries, please don't do X, Y, and Z without having a sort of good model to put um, to put up for negotiation or 
uh, to point to as an example. And I think the, the U.S. will have to come up with some kind of data governance um, set of regulations, but I just don't know if it's possible politically right now. And to what extent do you think it's going to be possible to come up with any global rules about ethical AI or quantum computing or some of these kind of huge technological innovations that are coming down the track? Well, it's certainly not possible without having a firm strategy on the table. Uh, and so I don't know which uh, areas I can think of right now that might be um, reasonable to expect any global agreement around. Uh, I think the world is fragmented in the most unfortunate ways um, and that differences in political ideology actually lead to very different uses of technology, different agendas, also okay. with developing countries. So I don't see a lot of room for global convergence. And I think that it's only natural to expect like-minded countries to move together first. Um, and so hopefully the democracies of this world can achieve that. Well, that takes us back to the to our fourth step, which is to take care of yourself. Because I think, you know, a lot of the, the things you've been talking about are about fragmentation of the world, but there's also a lot of fragmentation within our own societies. And my sense is that for all the fears that people have about electoral interference from outside and cyber and hacking, the biggest threats to, to democracy are actually endemic. They're not uh, things which are coming from outsiders. So what things do you think we should be able, uh, we should be trying to do when it comes to the impact of technology on our democracies? How can we protect ourselves? How can we increase our, our own resilience? Well, I do come back to the need to to preserve core principles like the principle of non-discrimination or fairness in the economy, like antitrust rules, and increasingly also uh, to consider the impact on the environment that is coming from uh, the use and the production of new technologies or the running of data centers. Um, so the public interest needs to be protected more firmly because digitization is often run by companies and there's very little concern for the public interest. And so the counterweight should really come to make sure that the public interest is, is better preserved. But there's another trap, I think, that, that democracies risk, which is, you know, when, when you feel like there is um, uh, risk and, and attack from the inside as well as from the outside, there can be a tendency to want to sit still, to be conservative, not to change much. Whereas I think democratic innovation and revival is also very important. So not just keeping what was there, but actually making sure that there are um, more voices at the table represented, which is a long way to go in most advanced democracies still, that new technologies can be used for greater accountability and participation by citizens through open budgets, you know, open, open governance, deliberative democracy, uh, meeting around different topics um, that people share, even if they may not meet in real life. So I think in order for democracy to survive, it also needs to be able to adjust. And that's a difficult combination, but I think we should not forget the need to innovate and revive democracy while we protect it. Wow, it's almost like we prepared this conversation beforehand. That leads us naturally to the final and fifth step in our therapy program, which is the idea of seeking real consent. I think we know that if there's one single principle that underpins all healthy relationships. It is this idea of, of consent, which gives it legitimacy. And that's one thing that's been conspicuously lacking when it comes to technology. Um, the GDPR was meant to be a step in that direction, getting people to give consent about using their data. But 
that's been criticized in lots of different ways. But I think there is a sort of broader sense that the leitmotif of politics in lots of different places is about taking back control. And there is a sense that the world is out of control, that algorithms are making important decisions about our futures in completely untransparent ways and that we're less and less able to control our futures. How do you, what does the kind of modern democratic agenda around technology look like? How can we give people a sense that they are the masters and mistresses of their destiny rather than simple playthings for, for mm-hmm. shadowy powers which are outside of their control? Well, you're absolutely right that this notion of consent risks becoming, I think, a consent theater as as a Cory Doctorow calls it, right? It looks like you have a choice, but it's engineered in such a way that it's really hard to make an actual uh, choice. And and moreover, it's hard to oversee what all the settings actually mean on the individual level. So I think there's only so much we can expect of the individual citizen to do to navigate the many, many, many settings and choices that they encounter when they engage with different online and digital services and products. So I think the the sort of protection of consumers and of the public good has to happen at a higher aggregate level. The way that when someone comes to the pharmacy and buys medication, they're not expected to understand whether the ingredients are are healthy in the medication, whether the production process was safe, whether they should take one or 10 pills a day. I mean, all of this has been regulated in a way that it's easiest as possible for a person to actually, you know, take the medication to their benefit uh, without um, needing to spend a lot of time studying it or incurring a lot of risk. And so there are just too few steps between the user and the tech company at the moment that are designed to protect the citizen. And so when we think about consent, we also have to ask ourselves what gets in the way of informed consent. And it is actually the information access. So we have a problem both individually and collectively as societies, that it's harder and harder to to discern what happens in algorithmic processes, how data is processed. It's proprietary, it's state secret protected. Companies are not keen to show what happens under the hood, whether it's to academics or to parliamentarians or to civil society leaders or to journalists. And so there is a knowledge and oversight gap as a result that makes answering the question about what consent looks like pretty much impossible. Because if you don't know what choices you're subject to or what affects your subject to, how do you know whether you like it or not? If you don't know whether your rights are actually respected, how do you know whether you should actually complain and challenge your treatment because you think your rights may have been violated? And so access to information is really the key to unlocking more informed consent and the very legitimacy that you were talking about. Okay, well, that's unfortunately all we have time for today. I'd like to thank my guest, Maricha Schaka, for joining me for a fascinating conversation in this special edition of our podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to it, we will put up links to some of the things that Marich has been writing about technology um, over the last few years. But um, there is also some good news if you've enjoyed this, because Maricha is in the process of writing a big book about the future. What's it going to be called, Maricha? Democracy.com. Democracy.com. And when's it coming out? Uh, In about a year and a half, I think. Okay, so you're going to have to be patient. But in the meantime, we'll put up some links to things that you can read. Um, If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please do subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud or whatever platform you've used to download it. 
And while you're there, please do leave us a positive review. We don't mind that at all. And uh, even a five star rating. Um, it's been uh, great fun talking to you. Uh, and I hope that you'll carry on listening to this series. But for now, from Maricha Schaka and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher for this week's podcast miniseries are Svancha Green and Lucy Halpenthal. And our editor this week is Chris Eichbauer.